0: The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning to all of you. Good morning. That is a very fine and kind welcome. Thank you very much. You can all make fun of my accent later. I'll make fun of yours as well. But uh, I was asking my students, we were in in one of our classes, and I asked them, I said, okay, give me a little counsel, coach me up here, to tell me what I need to do to make this bearable, to talk about the Constitution and faith and all this. And one of them, who who was Devin, uh, looked right at me, not missing a beat, and he said, please do not be boring. He said, we've had many chapel speakers who are boring, so I'm going to work at this as hard as I can. It is a privilege to be here. Uh, I enjoy being around you. You're a fine, uh, just a wonderful university and I've been so impressed with your studiousness, your academic rigor and the aspect of your academic challenges that you face here in a way that is amazing. So I'm thankful to be a part of this community at least in some tangential way with your president and your faculty. Well this morning we're going to do a little bit of historical excavation if you please. We're going to go back in time and look into some areas and talk about and think about some key figures because tomorrow is a very, very special day in the life of the United States of America. And if you're from another country, and I know many of you are, we welcome you. But the United States tomorrow is the 229th anniversary of the signing of the Constitution of the United States. Now, if that means nothing to you, just stay tuned a moment. I'm going to try to make it mean something to you because it truly is very, very important. Now, we do have in our era together today, we have what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. We tend to think that we, with all of our technological advances and our technology and our social media and all that is present with us today, that we in our enlightened age are much smarter than those who have lived before us. Yet when you read the writings of our predecessors and our forefathers in almost every discipline, theology, law, medicine, economics, they are quite rigorous in their understanding and in their writing, much more so than today. So as we begin to think about this today, I want us to make sure we do not possess this ailment of our modern day. Do not be guilty, my young friends, of chronological snobbery, because what holds us together today as a nation in the United States almost did not happen. Because it was looking to be impossible to get this one indispensable man to attend this would be the, the second national convention of states. It was well known that this gentleman did not like to travel, he did not like government meetings, and he did not like in any shape or form anything that would be pretentious in a way that would put him on display, so much so that he would have to speak out loud. George Washington was a military man and did not want to be president, did not even want to be a political figure, he really wanted to be a farmer. And if you've ever been to Mount Vernon, you can certainly see that. His temperament was such that he did not want to speak a lot, for he learned the hard way that even in the 1700s, when your words got in the newspaper, things could get really interesting and go a bad direction. But almost 229 years ago, in the winter of 1786 and the early spring of 1787, most people in the American colonies thought this convention of states would fail on its face. They thought it would never succeed, and frankly, they really didn't care. The city of Philadelphia, of which I have just been acquainted yet again with Adam's uh, g- glorious introduction of Philadelphia. I'll have more to say about that in a moment. But the city of Philadelphia had already been chosen as the site for the convention. Now at that time in Philadelphia's life, it was already a world city. Can you believe that? Already, almost 200 years ago, Philadelphia was recognized across the world as a leading city world city. It had 6,651 residences, which was a metropolis in the American colonies. More than 45,000 people lived in what we know in that area down by Independence Hall, Society Hill, they were all cramped in there. Their streets were stone and brick, which was very unusual for that time. The homes were stone and brick. Most in the rural areas were made of wood and it was not only just a fire hazard that prompted that or caused that to take place, but the wealth of Philadelphia was well known. Its infrastructure was very, very sophisticated. And believe it or not, it was a very religious Place. Now you would never know that today in secular Philadelphia. What I have come to be known, uh, Dr. Williams told me that it's affectionately called the city of brotherly shove. I have never seen a place, this is new to my wife and my children and I, when we're at a red light in downtown Philadelphia, when the light turns green. There is an immediate honking of the horn. I mean, we can't even barely move forward before we're insulted as if we're standing still when the light turned green. All right? So the Philadelphia of today was not the Philadelphia of two centuries ago. It was a very, very religious place. The Quaker movements, all of their religious meetings, some of you may be Quakers here or some of the Friends meetings, they were very dominant from the influence of William Penn. The Baptists were there in a large number. The Philadelphia Baptist Association produced the Philadelphia Confession of Faith in 1742. And the Presbyterians were there at the First Presbyterian Church downtown. Three figures were there that you need to remember. Thomas McKean, Dr. Benjamin Rush, and James Wilson. Probably the best legal mind that would assemble at this place were all faithful members of that congregation. But one man arrived in Philadelphia 11 days before May 14, 1787. That was the day the convention was to begin. And this man arrived in Philadelphia armed with books. He made his way to a home of Mrs. Mary House where all Virginians would stay in Philadelphia. It was kind of the Virginian boarding house. Now, this man, in the words of a colleague, was no bigger, as one newspaper put it, one, no bigger than a half piece of soap. He was five feet four inches tall. No offense to any of you that are that height. Yet Thomas Jefferson called this man the greatest man in the world. Yet many Americans only knew this man because the papers over and over said this about his wife. Quote, she was a pistol. Wait till you get married. You'll you'll learn what that means. George Will, the great Washington Post and Princeton graduate, uh, Washington Post columnist writes of this man, listen to this. Quote, If we really believe the pen is mightier than the sword or even more dignified than the sword, the nation's capital would not be named for the soldier who wielded the revolutionary sword, but for the thinker who was ablest with a pen. It would be, my class should know this, Madison, D.C. James Madison, Jr., as he was called Jimmy by some of his earlier teachers, was born in Virginia, March 16, 1751. And he often could be found, even as a young boy, reading in an upstairs library that you can still visit today at Montpelier, Even as a young boy, he was very, very precocious in many ways. But yet, when he turned 18 years old, he made his way 300 miles north to this region of the country to study at Princeton University with Reverend Thomas Martin. Now, Madison immediately went to Princeton and he tested out of two entire years of college. He sat down with an exam and passed these courses, all right? Listen to them. He passed these in English, Latin, Greek, mathematics, including geometry and trigonometry, and an entire uh, exam on the New Testament of the Bible. He went on to finish his degree in two years, but desired to remain at Princeton, to study with a very, very influential man who happened to be a Presbyterian minister whose statue stands outside of the chapel at Princeton. His name, John Witherspoon. Now, it's very important that you remember this because it was this Presbyterian minister that greatly influenced Madison to such a degree that historians often state that the British, when they looked at the United States, would state that America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. If you have any idea of how a Presbyterian church is governed, with its session, the Presbyterian and the General Assembly, you will see parallels in the local, state, and federal government system. And yet, Witherspoon, this one man, Professor Garrett Ward Shelton at the University of Virginia, says this about Witherspoon. Witherspoon has been credited with influencing at Princeton one president, James Madison, one vice president, Aaron Burr, 10 cabinet officers, 60 members of Congress, 12 state governors, 56 legislators, 30 judges, including three justices of the United States Supreme Court. That, my friends, is quite a legacy. This man invested in the lives of students. And these students were responsive in such a way that they emerged on the national scene as leaders of principle and honor. And yet, through the American Continental Congress, through the Revolutionary War... It was Madison and Witherspoon who worked together every day until this time in Philadelphia when he showed up early. Madison was ready. Now friends, Madison was not a perfect man. If you read his writings through and through, you see many variances of his thought. I'm not trying to whitewash and somehow give hagiography to this man. Madison was not perfect but he was very, very influential in shaping the foundation and understanding of our government. Through the tug-and-war of the states, it emerged with a constitution that is one of the simplest and strongest written constitutions in the history of the world. Now friends, we cannot speak of this paper document in reverent tones without admitting a few facts of context. Most people at this time were rural and uneducated. They could have cared less what was going on in Philadelphia. Most saw themselves as peasants of the British crown. Most thought of themselves as state residents before anything of a national union. But what we see developing as a result of this work was, in the words of Christopher and James Collier, we see how important it was to the outcome that James Madison had come to Philadelphia with a strong plan and allies enough to push it through. We cannot contemplate this Constitution, friends, on this anniversary tomorrow, and not realize the rootage of its context in the history of American slavery. Now your generation, my friends, are doing us a great service today by challenging many of our assumptions in ways that need to be heard. But as you challenge and as you critique, we must understand that the perspectives of those who would see this as a fraud, as a completely useless document, we must give them space to understand. Why? Because we cannot ignore the three-fifths clause in Article I of the Constitution. We cannot do that. We cannot ignore Justice Chief Justice Roger B. Tawney's opinion in the Dred Scott versus Stanford case in 1857. This man stated openly that African slaves and all their descendants were not meant to share, listen to this, and the natural rights of the Declaration of Independence. He went on to say that the right to own slaves was, quote, distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. Can you believe that? Is it any wonder that the brilliant former slave Frederick Douglass would speak these words on July the 4th, 1852 to the Rochester Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society when he said this? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than any other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. Can you imagine hearing that live? If you haven't read that essay, read it. It's very challenging. And it was this victimization of Africans that were illegally brought to our borders, that would propel a young man forward through years of suffering to rise to the office of President of the United States. He was born in a log cabin, extremely poor. He was the son of a common laborer. Young Abraham Lincoln would clear land with an axe beginning at the age of seven. He would clear lots of land. You ever tried to clear a land with an axe? It's very, very difficult to do, especially when your father is cursing you openly and abusing you as a little boy. But even at seven, he was growing quite tall for his age. Abraham loved to read. If my children were here, they would tell you, what does Daddy say? Readers are leaders. Abraham Lincoln loved to read, and he would pursue his self-education away from his father in the early morning hours at breaks at noon and by candlelight at night. He loved to read, of all things, Shakespeare. That's for all the English prophets in the room. He loved to read Shakespeare. And he had learned to balance his love of reading with the abuse of his father, that did not make his emotional health all that stable. There's hope for us, isn't there? Candidly, he learned to survive. But when when he was nine years old, his world shattered. Nancy Hanks Lincoln, his mom, who protected him from his father, died. And he had to make her casket and lower her body into what was an unmarked grave. Only in recent years have we discovered where his mom, his mother, was buried. Lincoln was far from handsome. In the words of William Freeling, historian, he states this, he had a tall, gangly frame, very long arms, extending to overly long fingers, that reached unusually far down, unusually long legs. Are you catching this? This is long. You know, he has long fingers, long legs, long legs. He was not a handsome man. He would not be up for contest to the most popular person, and he probably would not win the presidency of the modern American media experience. He would not be a me. He was not a made-for-TV president. The man had unusually flat feet, and it made him walk funny. But what he read... Often was the Bible from start to finish, and his favorite book was John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Now, lest you think I'm trying to Christianize Lincoln, I would never do that. Alan Gelzo, now Princeton professor and graduate of this illustrious institution, would kill me for that. That is not true, but he definitely read Christian theology, Holy Scripture, and Pilgrim's Progress. And yet, in the words of Freeling again. Listen to this. As his orations would prove, his voice turned written words into spoken magic. Lincoln once told someone that he was very slow to learn. He said this My mind is like a piece of steel, very hard to scratch anything on it, and almost impossible after you get it there to rub it out. Not good? I wish my mind was like that. And for all this, Americans are grateful. Why? Because he pushed back the readings of the Constitution that allowed and endowed American slavery to be seen as legal. He took the Declaration of Independence as the interpretive lens for our Constitution. And his most famous quote about this is follows. He got this from reading Proverbs twenty-five, eleven. A word fitly spoken, a word rightly spoken, is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Listen to what Lincoln said about the Declaration and the Constitution. Listen carefully. The assertion of that principle, the Declaration of Independence, at that time was the word aptly or fitly spoken, which has proven to be the apple of gold to us. The Union, the Constitution, more than a picture of silver, subsequently framed around it. The picture was made for the apple, not the apple for the picture. The Constitution, Lincoln believed, was made, the Declaration was made, and the Constitution supported it in a way that framed the underlying principles. He made a a warning to us. Listen. Listen. So let us act that neither picture or apple shall ever be blurred or bruised or broken, so that we may act, we must study. Wow, wait, what? We have to study? Yep. We must study and understand the points of danger. And yet, my friends, we've reached a point of danger in our era as well. Political scientists and sociologists alike are looking at the demographic data from election returns from 1996 to 2016, a mere 20 years. And what they are finding is astounding. They are finding that in 1996, more than 1,100 counties were won by less than 1% in the presidential election. That means the counties that people were, it was a toss-up. We didn't know how it was going to come about. Today, in the 2016 election, the latest for which we have data at the presidential level, only 310 counties were even close. That means they had a blowout. Either way, red or blue. That's a 72% drop in competitive counties in just 20 years. What does this mean? It is undeniable, friends, it is incontrovertible evidence that we are a divided nation. We live around people we like and how wonderful the world would be if everyone were just like me. I mean, I want to live, we, we're, the hegemony coming about of this is scary Because if you disagree with me politically, you're an enemy. You're an enemy to me. Not a fellow citizen who disagrees, but you're my enemy. Now, what are we to make of all this? I distinctly remember a lecture in 2001. It came to my desk soon after 9-11 when I was there. Uh, 9-11, 2001, Nate Rossi had the audacity when I asked the class, were any of you alive at that time? He looked at me and he said, I was two. It was very, very frustrating, humiliating for me, turning 51. But uh, yeah, yeah, I was two. And he said, yeah, he's still going to pass. Don't worry. I hope. We'll see. Uh, we said, But I saw that I heard a lecture from a sociologist at the University of Virginia by the name of James Davison Hunter. And basically, he was stating this. He called the lecture to change the world. And he was critiquing the theology of Chuck Colson, who was at that time the president of Prison Fellowship, theologian, ethicist, former Nixon White House aide who had gone to jail for the Watergate scandal and crime, was converted to Christ and came out of federal prison to start. Prison Fellowship and the Wilberforce Forum, and many of which we have the great legacy of his life today. He critiqued Mr. Colson by saying that Colson's bottom up view of culture, meaning that the local, the personal, the, the, the home, the church, the school, that the people with the right ideas had the power to change the world or change lives. James Davison Hunter would have nothing of it. He said, Oh, no, no, you're wrong. He had been reading Randall Collins' huge tome, The Society of Philosophers, and he said, No, no, we need to capture the elite stations of media. We need to capture the elite stations of life. We need to go to the best universities. We need to the best situations there so that we capture this in a way that would allow us to control the levers of culture. Colson is absolutely wrong. It doesn't matter if you have the ideas right if you don't have access to power. So for the last 20 years, a lot of evangelicals and Christians have tried to gain access to power. And some have succeeded. But to what avail? The suicide epidemic among your generation is growing. Homes are breaking at a rapid pace. Churches are fractious and contentious. It seems to me Mr. Colson was right. I asked him before he died, I said, Sir, what do you think about this critique? He said to me this He said, Come with me to the prison and you will have your answer. Come with me to the prison and you will have your answer. He stated there to me, when I preach in prison, and I hear prisoners worship, it is there that I see the church at its strongest, not its weakest. We tend to think it'd be very weak there. But at its strongest. For the wayward, the condemned, the sinner, the convict, the castaways, they know their only hope is Christ. We just live in fantasy land. Our prisons are invisible while theirs are very visible. And yet he said, When I see men and women who are freed from death's darkness by the power of the gospel, by the Holy Spirit, no power, no government, no law, nothing like that can ever create what only the Holy Spirit can do. Isn't that great? He gave me this warning. He said, do not give your life to power. Give your life to the local, the personal, the powerless, the poor, and do not nationalize everything in your life as a political project. I'll always remember those words from him. So my friends know the American Constitution is not to be regarded as a Christian document. The Declaration of Independence is not to be regarded as something, as a product of the church, but the American founders and other Americans like Lincoln had a vision of a nation that was not simply the product of its deepest grievances and sins. Rather, it was a place where tyranny and government oppression could not legally bind your conscience or stop you from worshiping because the greatest aspects of this life on earth while we're on our journey here onto the more real and permanent world that awaits us is found in the support and help of a community of faith. So my friends, why not let it begin with You today. Do you know others in this room? Have you introduced yourself to them? Have you said hello? Do you pray for them? Do you invite them to your church? Are you into their lives? Do you know each other? Do you care about each other? Are you in a faithful, healthy, local church? If not... If your life consists of hashtags and Twitter, you are living in fantasy land and you will find yourself spiritually dry and you will be shedding away the great gift the founders of this nation gave you to have the local and the personal community of your life. That is our greatest need. And so on this 229th anniversary of this special day, let us resolve today to be the people of God who in this community stand ready to receive the wayward, the lost, and reach out to others in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and while we are here, to study with all of our might. So that, should God and His providence give you the opportunity like a Madison, a Witherspoon, a Lincoln, may be a future president here, who knows? you will be ready and armed with the greatest tools of intellect to bring about not being some partisan hack, but expressing the truth of not just political doctrine, but care and understanding of the great gift that is the United States, our country. Let's pray, can we? Father, we thank you for this place. We thank you that we can stand here openly and speak of the name of Christ Jesus, the Savior, the Lord, the King of kings. All nations one day shall bow before him. We know that all the nations rage against God, even our own. And yet we pray that you will work in our lives and work through our lives and your work through this institution and other institutions of our land to bring about what only God can do. And that you would raise up, even be pleased to raise up from this student body, great leaders who, like Madison, studied theology, Latin, some who are readers. Raise them up for the glory of God is our prayer in his name. Amen. Have a great day. You are dismissed.